my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, June 6, 2012. Man, weird to think that we are rapidly approaching our four-year anniversary of being in production. Wow, on the air. Um, June 30th, that's when it's coming up. So I can say, I feel you so... <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of, well, crazy, bizarre things being said out there. And, I, you know, I don't get it. Um, it's It's as if somehow... All of a sudden, in in churches, people just seem to think, "Yeah, I can believe whatever I want to believe." I don't. What's the point of having a Bible, you know? Because I can pick and choose the parts I want to believe. I can just kind of cobble together a, a Christianity that I find compelling, a Christianity that I think is relevant to my life. I mean, yeah, you know that Trinity stuff. Who cares about the Trinity? That's not relevant to my life, you know. So I don't know if I believe in the Trinity. Yeah, you know. Uh, Evolution, you know, that seems, and the whole evolution creation thing, that's not that's not relevant to my life. So I don't, you know, I really don't care. You know, and uh, whether or not Mary was really a virgin, eh, who cares about that? You know, it's I, I need something relevant to li my life. I mean, my life, you know, challenging. You know, I, I've got financial problems. I've got, I've got marital struggles. I've got misbehaved children. I, I just don't feel like I'm. I'm 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 being appreciated for my true talents at my job that I'm at, and so I want a Christianity that addresses those things. As far as you know, the Trinity, the Incarnation, you know, the Virgin Birth and Creation. Oh, I got it. 
That's a waste of my time. You know, come on, I've got I got I got baseball games to go to. I got PTA meetings to attend. I I've got a world to to influence and 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 so that everyone knows how significant that I am. I, I need a Christianity that's going to help me on my way to being significant and important. You get what I'm saying here? Um so the uh, issue is is that well, there's a whole host of pastors out there who are catering to that mentality. Oh, you want a Christianity that without, well, you know, the Trinity, without the virgin birth, without, you know, creation, without all those thorny doctrines like the incarnation. You 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 don't want to spend any time in, you know, like the Greek and understanding like the outlines of the creeds and stuff like that. No problemo. Here, we'll just uh, go into our word shop here and uh, cobble together. Uh, there you go. Here's a, a brand new Christianity for you. How do you like it? Oh, you want us to modify this and that? No problem. We'll just take that off and put that on it. There, ta-da. See, what do you think? And be, oh, yeah, that's great. Well, that's Christianity. That ain't, Christ <laughs> folks, that ain't Christianity. That is something completely different. Um, and not only that, it's extremely shallow, really shallow. And uh, I can only imagine, actually, it's more than imagination. I actually see stats on these things. But uh, I can only imagine that there are folks out there that have done the whole seeker-driven church thing. And, you know, after a couple of years, they go, yeah, this is um, kind of leaves you unsatisfied kind of leaves you is do you got something any deeper than this i mean i mean seriously i mean you know my kiddie pool out in my uh, back backyard for my three-year-old is a little deeper than this and so they end up leaving and then they'll go anywhere you know because they, they think they've done the christian thing and they haven't that's the thing isn't it they haven't really done the christian thing and so if you're new to this program um, and you're looking for some depth, we'll provide you with depth and point you in the direction where you can go to get more. Because this is a radio program. This is not church. I'm not your pastor. You, you understand what I'm saying? I, you know, and I don't play one on television. That's so that, that's the idea. But, um, so, you know, we challenge what people are saying and try to drive you back into God's word and teach you how you can how you can compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God because when you start doing that when you start doing the comparative work and being discerning and start saying you know wait a second I, you know he ripped that verse out of context let's go back and put it into the context which you can't avoid doing is running into well the deep stuff and uh running into the missing depth you know, those guys who are cherry-picking and ripping verses and half-verses and half-sentences and, and subordinate clauses out of context in order to weave together their own theology, they ain't teaching you Christianity, and there's no depth to what they're teaching anyway. It's all designed to, you know, basically cater to your idolatrous desire to have a, quote, spiritual experience that centers around you. And, well, let me break this to you. I won't even break it to you gently. I'll just tell you the way it is, is that... Jesus Christ, yeah, and Christianity don't exist to cater to your desire to have a spiritual experience that revolves around you. Um, no, in fact, um, the spiritual experience that Christianity, biblical, true, historic Christianity, more than likely will cause you to have is this. 
is that you will hear in the preaching of God's law, you know, the Ten Commandments, the, the moral uh, imperatives from the epistles. When you, when you run into those, you are going to run into the holiness of God and realize, oh, man, am I in trouble because I haven't been doing this like at all. And then you're going to run into this idea that, well, if this is what God has revealed in his word that he wants me to do and I'm not doing it, then you run into the other passages that talk about the wrath of God against sin and lawlessness and rebellion against him. And you're going to realize, oh, no, 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 this is not good. I'm Not only am I not doing what I'm supposed to do, but there's like eternal severe consequences for not doing these things. And, you, and you're going to realize you begin to start to see a glimpse of what your real problem is. See, your problem isn't that you have misbehaved children, nor is it this idea that, well, you're just not experiencing a life of significance or things like that. And your problem isn't that you're, well, you just have some challenges regarding your finances. If you could just get the right advice and get it under control, you know, you'd you'd have the financial thing. And, yeah, that's that's not your problem. That's not your problem. Those may be symptoms of your problem. And believe me when I tell you, as I'm describing them, th- that doesn't even begin to remotely reveal the problem that you have and the severity of it. See, the problem is this. You and me both were born dead in trespasses at sin and at war with God. And all of the temporal consequences of it that you are feeling in your life, okay, that could take the shape of all all kinds of shapes, okay, misbehaved children, financial stress and problems and feeling like you are just laboring and, and working hard and barely getting by, all of that's a consequence of your sin and mine. Yeah, the 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 fact that you don't feel appreciated or have a life of significance, it may be that the problem there is you have such a self-centered focus, and that's because of your sin. And see, when the religious experience that biblical Christianity is going to drive you to is drive you to utter despair over your ability ability to please God, you can't do it. Not by your good works and your law-keeping, because when you really look hard and long at what God's law demands from you, you realize you aren't even close to pulling it off. So the first part of the religious experience that biblical Christianity drives you to is a feeling of utter despair and helplessness regarding rescuing yourself from your condition, from your real problem. And that's a good thing. The next part of it, more than likely, is going to be sorrow. Sorrow and feelings of anguish over the fact that you personally have betrayed, rebelled against, disobeyed, spat in the face of the God who created you. Sorrow and contrition for your sins. That's part of the religious experience that Christianity 
offers biblical Christianity. It's not that it's like, hey, how would you like to feel sorrow for your sins? That's just what happens. But then the next part is amazing. Because the next part of it is the feelings that you have in personally hearing that your sins, you, your sins have been died for. Your sins have been forgiven. You are declared by God himself through the gospel, through the proclamation of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. You then would hear forgiven, pardoned, justified, declared righteous, all on account of what Christ has done for you. And see, then from there, you have a new heart. You are a new creation in Christ. And the worship that you do is not done as a sacrifice in order to make God happy with you. It's done as a response of gratitude for the very precious gift that God has given you that you didn't deserve, but that was done for you by God. See, Christianity offers a real religious experience, and it's a religion that begins in terror. The, the experience begins in terror and sorrow and ends in peace and joy. You see the difference? This other, the, the experience that you have at these other churches that are doing this weird stuff, you never brought to true repentance and sorrow for your sins. You don't ever really, you constantly feel the terrors of the law, but it's so diluted that you suspect that there's something wrong, but you can't ever put your finger on it because you show up and you take notes and you leave there going, okay, so here's five more things I need to do to my life to clean things up and and since this occurred in church, I'm, you know, I got this information. I'm in church. I'm fairly certain that if I apply these five easy principles and easy steps, that that will finally turn my conscience off and give me some respite, so that I can feel like I've made some progress in making God happy with me. But they never do, do they? Because. The law always demands, and it's never done, and you don't accomplish it. And when you look at what God has demanded from you, you, you realize you keep falling short. And the cycle in those churches is, okay, go to, go to the, uh, the self-help center, get the five easy principles from the life application relevant sermon, take the notes in the fill-in-the-blank thing, because it's all easy now. You just All you got to do is fill in the blanks, and da-da, there, there you have it. You got the five easy things that you need to work on this week. And then you get home, and you realize, man, these are not easy at all. The way the pastor sells them, all I got to do is just apply these things, and, and bada-bing, bada-boom, you know, I'll start earning these blessings, and God will be happy with me, and never works out that way. In fact, you keep chasing after these, you know, keep trying to make God pleased with you by applying these principles, and the more condemned you feel. Never is the gospel then offered. Instead, the solution is you got to try harder. you got to pray longer. Maybe you should fast. Maybe you should have a mystical experience. And it drives you farther and farther and farther and farther and farther and farther into all the things you've got to do. And what's missing is the proclamation of the good news of what Christ has done for you. There is no peace offered through the law.
because the law always condemns. You can never say that you've done it, but Jesus can, and his perfect sinless righteousness is imputed to those who are brought to faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And they have true faith, knowing that they are reckoned righteous because of what Christ has done, and God is pleased with them because of what Christ has done. And now, for those who are Christians, they are set free. Set free to love neighbor, to love God. And it's not done from this idea, if I don't do this, then God's going to be displeased with me, and then I'm not really going to make it to heaven or anything like that. No, 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 no. You already have it. You already have heaven. You already have it. Those who are in Christ already have it. It's given as a gift. You can't earn it so that no one can boast. No one. Those who are in Christ have been declared righteous. Or as Galatians says, Paul says in Galatians, if a law had been given by which men must be saved, well, then Christ died for no good reason, no reason at all. But see, Christ did die. He died for your sins and mine and calls all of us to repentance and faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And you know what? He delivers on his promises. O Lord, if you kept record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. You see, Christ offers you forgiveness. He doesn't offer you better sex. He doesn't offer you better behaved children. He doesn't offer you influence at work or the job of your dreams or to make your dreams come true. He offers you full pardon for your rebellion against him, including all of those other idolatrous notions, turning him into an apple god. Just pull the lever and out comes the genie devices necessary to, well, you get what I'm saying. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um, yesterday, I, pr I, I promised we were going to do two things we didn't get to uh, yesterday. Um, number one is the Pastors.com article called Why Knowledge is a Thing of the Past. We're going to do a little comparative work uh, with what's written in this article to what is written in God's Word, and I'll explain to you what, what this is and where it comes from. I've got a Cindy Jacobs update and a Dominionist update. It's been a while since we've done a Cindy Jacobs um, update. I've also uh, got that story regarding how Southern Baptists are divided over Calvinism, and uh, today... Albert Muller has weighed in on this, so we'll take a look at we, what he has to say. And then, time permitting, I have a, an exhibit from the Museum of Idolatry that I want to share with you, but I don't know if it's going to make the cut today. So, <clears throat> uh, And then in hour number two, just to let you know, we're going to continue with the series that I've been doing as we've been kind of pulling apart the uh, Experiencing God teaching series during the midweek adult Bible study at Granger Community Church up in Granger, Indiana, which is one of the flagship seeker-driven churches out there. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, your listener experience, of course, is very important to me. It's important to note this, uh, that fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience. If you do not own a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers, I can only say, listen, from personal experience, I know that this enhances your listener experience. Head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. On the left-hand side of the website, you'll see two different pairs of fuzzy bunny slippers uh, that uh, to choose from. 
either one of them will do the trick, except for don't wear it if it's super hot in your neck of the woods. That causes your feet to sweat, and then that does detract. And, of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult uh, beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we don't have a problem with that. But keep in mind this, that uh, this is a wonderful gift from God, and you don't want to abuse it or be enslaved to it. That's just kind of silly. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, and uh, that means we're going to play this. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. The Twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overflow the earth. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. brain. Yeah, our peaking in the brain uh, music there, we play that for the Dominionists. Dominionists, by the way, basically have this idea that they've got to take over the world before Jesus can come back. Apparently, Jesus is stuck up in heaven. I mean, just poor Jesus. You know, he's up there he's just wringing his hands going, no, please, I want to come down there, but I can't. I can't return until you guys do your part. I really want to take over the world. I can't, though, because, you know, it's <clears throat> so they believe that they have to somehow create the kingdom of God here on Earth. And there's apparently the seven mountains are involved, the seven mountain thing. And so they got to they'll, they'll take over the world by through these seven mountains. But anyway, Cindy Jacobs is one of the primary uh, promoters and purveyors of the uh, <clears throat> Dominionist agenda. And she earlier this year spoke at the Global Presence Ministries uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, I'm playing this because while well, she said some things that are well rather revealing. And disturbing all at the same time. Here, I'll let Cindy Jacobs explain. Here we go. The contending house is arising. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, for these that will start houses and, and lead prayer early in the morning. God spoke to us in the 80s. There was early morning prayer with Dr. Larry Lee, but it went outside of the house. But in this day, God's going to bring it back into the house. Uh, did I warn you that she was going to be apparently prophesying? I may have failed to mention that. That's what... That's why she's shouting. Apparently, prophecy can't happen unless you're actually screaming into a microphone. The ecclesias and pastors and leaders are going to call for their people and say, meet me before you go to work. Let's pray. Let's seek God together. So in the name of Jesus, I anoint you. I pray yeah, for Lord. you. Impartation to be dawn warriors, the army of the dawn. You know to be Dawn war. So apparently she's calling forth prophetically the dawn warriors to be to warriors of the dawn. I, I want to tell you something. Don't think you can't do it. Listen, everybody has to begin somewhere. No one is insignificant. Yeah, I mean, so if you're looking, if I mean, if you're looking for you know if some significance, you know, 
You can be a dawn warrior. Don't worry if you don't feel like you can't do it. You know, don't, don't worry about that. You know, just... No one is insignificant. You know, some just just begin. Yeah, what right. if there's only two? What if there's only exactly three? Right. What if there's only four? Yeah, if there's only four dawn warriors, I don't know how long it'll take for them to take over Madison, Wisconsin. But you know, it doesn't matter. Just 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 call your friends. You know, women, call your girlfriends. Get on the phone. Do a go-to-conference call or just get on. Call early. Call in your jammies, you know. You don't even have to leave the house if you don't need to. But get in there and pray. But there's something I will not sacrifice to God, God, that which costs me nothing. There's something of sacrifice that happens when we love God more than our necessary sleep. And listen, this is supernatural. It is. I- <laughs> Yeah, she's uh, stringing a, together a whole load of nonsensical statements. I don't even know what she's talking about. It's supernatural. I have seen God sustain people. Yeah. When they get up early and pray, go to work all day and be fine. God can supernaturally sustain us. Yeah, you don't need to sleep. Don't worry. God will just supernaturally sustain you. You need to be a dawn warrior. Get up early and start. Are you saying this? He can supernaturally sustain us. Yeah, okay. But God wants, wants to release that fervency. So he wants to release the fervency, but he can't until the right things happen. Wants to release that fervency. And one thing that Larry Lee preached on was your kingdom come. That's right. Your will be done. That's right. Let your kingdom come. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. That's Listen, right. Matthew 6, biblically, is Jesus' constitution for his kingdom. Um, really? Matthew 6. That would be from the Sermon on the Mount. Never saw it as constitutional language. Is there a preamble in there? When he came and he established earth, it was part of the kingdom of heaven. And he wants it back. Um, have you read Matthew 28 where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Um, Jesus is already on the throne of David. All authority has already been given to him. What are you talking about? So Jesus... I don't know what that happens with end-time eschatology. I don't really care. I'm just going to occupy till he comes. Okay. I'm going to be a faithful steward. So she's part of the occupy crowd, apparently. She's the occupy the dominion of earth crowd. This is why She's part of the 90% or whatever. Why the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, Acts 15, 60, is so important. Because- oh, no. Why do we need to rebuild the tabernacle? The tabernacle is where sacrifices took place. Uh, the temple is where sacrifices took place. Jesus has been sacrificed once for all. We don't need a tabernacle or the temple. You, you get what I'm saying here? Because worship will push back the darkness in this hour. Oh, boy. And so that's why sometimes God will just have you go just worship an hour or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you'll speak that Kairos word. Speak a Kairos word. Oh, okay. Shatter the heavens. Uh Uh-huh. So see, if you just speak a Kairos word, it'll shatter the heavens. I don't know of any verses that say that, but so so God is saying, take it up higher, yeah. take it up higher. Mm-hmm. Sure. Take it up higher. Now, some of you are feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are feeling warmth in your hands. Some of you, do. some of you feel like electricity, 
Electricity is all over you. The yeah, I, I feel like I'm going to be sick listening to this. Lord says, they're on the university in Madison. God is going to start Dawn Warriors. <laughs> She's going to, God's going to start Dawn Warriors. <laughs> See, you just shout it like that. You know, what is that? <laughs> Okay, so right there, the, the University of Madison, apparently known for its liberalism, uh, God's going to just, he's going to create some Dawn Warriors. You know, you know. Well, it's going to turn that school around. The Lord says, I call that my school. God is going to raise up his burning ones. Uh-oh. Yeah, um, burning ones. I see. Whenever I hear about somebody burning, I always think about the lake of fire. I you just you know. There's going to be a Jesus people movement burnt off that campus that had been so liberal. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Words of prophecy from S <laughs> Cindy Jacobs. What on earth is that? Good night. Yeah, it's. Uh, a little dose of dominionism to wake you up and <clears throat> just to start the day off. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll continue when we come back. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Yeah, we'll be right back. i got to get my head back on straight after the Dawn Warriors, you know? If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait! Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line! That's a birdie! The crowd is going wild! When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant 
brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Chris Rosebro here with another useful technology product recommendation. Do you use an iPad or another competing tablet device? Well, if so, then you know how aggravating it is to constantly have to keep wiping off the smudge marks and fingerprints. Well, I've got the perfect solution for you. It's the Bamboo Stylus. Now, I've tried about a half a dozen different types of styluses over the years, and the Bamboo Stylus is by far the best stylus I've used. It's perfectly weighted. Feels and works just like a high-end or high-priced pen. And I use my bamboo stylus every day with my iPad for writing notes, drawing, and other day-to-day -day tasks. If you're considering getting a stylus for your iPad or tablet, then you can't go wrong with the old bamboo. And the best part is they come in multiple colors. So to get yours, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and right there on our homepage, you'll see an ad banner that you can click on to purchase your bamboo. And a portion of your purchase will go to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That website again, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for the bamboo ad banner, click on it, and get your bamboo today. Morning. Uh, just because somebody can shout while they're prophesying doesn't mean they're actually prophesying. Yeah, that's not the sign of a true prophet versus a false prophet. Look it up in the Bible. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the center of the homepage, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them and fill it all out and support us. And uh, the, uh, the Join Our Crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. The Join Our uh, the uh, Donate button, you can specify the amount that you would like to contribute. And uh, right now we are in uh, the first leg of our summer bake sale to... Uh, Help us get through the uh, the lean summer months, and uh, what you uh, if if you haven't already seen it, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh, take a look at the uh, bracelet that my mother in law made. 
Uh, we have a limited supply of them uh, available for our listeners for purchase. And uh, when you purchase them, all the proceeds go to help uh, Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And again, it's made with love and good high quality by my mother-in-law. So go check it out, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh, get your limited edition PCR mother-in-law, Chris's mother-in-law bracelet. <laughs> anyway, you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay, moving along. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget of Solomon's Porch. As they play Strauss's, also Sprock Zarathustra. You will notice that they have rejected the uh, concept of knowledge and have instead embraced questions. Questions as to how exactly to play this particular piece without limiting themselves and putting themselves inside of the box of modernist definitions of notes that stifle the spirit. Ugh, just brings tears to my eyes every single time I hear it. In case, in case you can't tell, I decided that I would go ahead and play the <laughs> the emergent uh, orchestra there to uh, lead into this piece. So from the pastors.com website. Now, let me kind of tell you exactly why I'm reading this. Why? Because here's the deal. You'll notice that there's a term that has, well, kind of gone missing. And the term is emergent. Why? Well, because Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, and Brian McLaren and those guys seem to have hijacked it and turned it into the new form of liberalism. But see, the, if, you rem if you are a careful student of the whole emerging slash emergent church movement, then you understand this, that the whole point of the emerging church movement was that it was a product. It was a product developed, a marketing schema, if you would, developed by the Druckerites in order to find a way to speak the language of people who are in, in, in to the postmodern culture, because the culture's gone postmodern, right? So here's what happened, is that they got a big, the Druckerites got a huge black eye over the whole postmodern emergent thing. So they've regrouped, okay? They've got, the, the, the folks in the network have gotten back together and they've gone into their little war rooms to, you know, to come up with a new marketing strategy. And here's how the strategy is being played out. What they're going to do is argue the content of postmodern ideas, but never, ever say the word postmodern or emergent ever again. Because it's harder to tag it, flag it, and refute it biblically if you don't see it for what it is. So what they're trying to do is teach the same concepts, the same arguments that we were seeing from Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, and all those guys in the heyday of the emergent church movement and the whole postmodern thing without actually saying the word emergent or postmodern. So they're teaching it without saying it. That's what they're doing. And this 
article, which was posted on June 4th, 2012 at pastors.com. Was, uh, apparently it's an excerpt from a book by a guy by the name of Keith Webb, but the article is entitled, Why Knowledge is a Thing of the Past. Why Knowledge is a Thing of the Past. And so let me read here. By the way, pastors.com, well, that falls under the purview of Rick Warren. So since the buck always goes to the top and stops at the top, this is actually Rick Warren's problem to deal with, and it's his issue to resolve, which I doubt he'll even do, but he's ultimately responsible. You get what I'm saying, even though he's not the one who wrote the article. So why knowledge is a thing of the past? Did you know that knowledge is a thing of the past? I had no idea that knowledge was a thing of the past, but this is actually irrational philosophy. This is what I spoke about in my lecture, resistance is futile, you'll be assimilated into the community. This is what this is, okay? This is irrational philosophy. This is an attack against reason and thought and stuff like that. Listen to this. As leaders, we often view ourselves as knowledge providers. So we teach, tell, or advise, and in this way, pass on our knowledge to someone else. The instruction process requires the other person to listen as we share our knowledge. The assumption is that we have to, uh, what we have to say will be the key to solving the other person's problem or will help them achieve their goal. This is sometimes helpful, but knowledge, well, even the knowledge that worked for us in the past, isn't as powerful as generating insight in the other person. So we own what we discover. So don't get me wrong, I love studying what's already been said and done on a topic. That information is, well, it's invaluable. However, it is only one type of learning. And I believe there is deeper learning that goes beyond existing knowledge and how others have applied it. Deeper learning actually creates new ideas, applications, and actions that neither the leader nor the other person were aware of before. It is the discovery process where I often see the Holy Spirit working. Ah, so the Holy Spirit isn't working in knowledge and passing knowledge along. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit is working in the discovery process, in the deeper knowledge. If you're sitting there going, man, that sounds kind of like the Gnostic thing that um, Phil Johnson was warning us about in that lecture, I would go, hmm, you're listening correctly if that's what you concluded. We continue, though, with this article from pastors.com. So stimulating new insights requires engaged and reflective thinking. This is where powerful questions come in. Asking the right questions promotes reflection more effectively than merely providing knowledge. See, we we see we we got to ask questions. So coaches as well as other leaders use questions as a primary tool in working with others. Questions help stimulate thinking, broaden perspective, and generate new options for actions. So let's look at the difference between knowledge and questions. Apparently questions are more important than knowledge. So knowledge is past. Yeah, you don't want that knowledge. That's that's in the past. Questions? Well, questions are future. Okay, check this one out. Knowledge is static. Questions, well, they're dynamic. Knowledge is rigid. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, questions are flexible. Knowledge limits options. Oh, that bad knowledge. I don't want to have my options limited. Questions create 
possibilities. Knowledge requires adaptation. Questions call for innovation. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is a location. Questions are a journey. Knowledge can be superior. Questions, well, they require humility. Knowledge knows. Questions learn. So powerful questions come from profound listening and engagement with a person. What makes a question powerful is its ability to provoke reflection in the other person. Many of us are used to telling people our own reflections rather than drawing out theirs. However, what our questions draw out may just be what the Holy Spirit put in the person's heart. Okay? What are we dealing with here? Folks, this could have been written by Brian McLaren in 2005. Remember the whole humble hermeneutic thing? Oh no, no, no. We don't we don't we don't want to be arrogant modernists and put forward assertions and meta narratives. No, 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 no. We wanna we wanna ask questions in conversation within community, right? That's what this is. But the thing that's missing, the thing that's missing here is the word emergent or postmodern. They're teaching the same concept, but they've stripped off the label so that you can't nail them on it. So you have to know what you're looking for. But by the way, this is not what the Bible teaches, okay? And uh, I would provide as a counterpoint to that entire article. No, you'll notice something important there. It was teaching an epistemology, an epistemology that says that knowledge is bad. It's static. It's in the past. It's it's limiting and we want to we want innovation and and God is is the Holy Spirit is speaking not in knowledge but God the Holy Spirit is speaking in well the questions the experience right this that's that is irrational philosophy and it's contrary this is an epistemology that epistemology is to how you know what you know what you know this is an epistemology that is not compatible with biblical Christianity I would provide just as a simple counterpoint Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. Now, keep in mind, Solomon here is writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit. Okay? This isn't just Solomon speaking here. The more important person speaking is God, the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God breathed, right? You know, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. So listen to what the Holy Spirit says. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Let me read that again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise this, not the wise, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now let me fast forward to verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you scoffers delight in, their, in your scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit 
to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called you and you refuse to listen. You have, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all of my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but I will not be. Uh, they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose to f- the fear of the Lord. Would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way. They have their fill in their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Hmm. Fools despise knowledge. Fools, according to Scripture. Yet Rick Warren's Pastors.com argues against knowledge, saying that knowledge is a thing of the past. It's only a thing of the past, biblically, if you're a fool. From the Christian Post, headline reads, Southern Baptists Divided Over Calvinism Debate Salvation Document. This is by Lillian Kwan. Uh, Hundreds of Southern Baptists have signed a statement that rejects Calvinistic views on the doctrine of salvation and outlines the traditional Southern Baptist understanding of of God's plan of salvation. Traditional Southern Baptist? The statement which denies that God predestined certain people for salvation and others for condemnation, among other beliefs, has stirred wide debate within the Southern Baptist Convention, which some affirm as fully and others arguing that it is causing an unnecessary division. Quote, Why are we headed down the broken road of schism over uh, Calvinism today? Asked Josh Buse, pastor of Praise Mill... Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, quote, have we forgotten our history as Southern Baptists where we had Calvinists such as Lottie Moon, James P. Boyce, and John L. Dagg, A.T. Robertson, John A. Broadus, and many others who served in our convention along with those who were less Calvinistic reformed in their doctrine. They didn't fight over it, throw mud, and pull out the heresy sword to use on one another. Statements of the traditional Southern Baptist understanding of God's plan of salvation was authored by Pastor Eric Hankins and several other Baptist leaders who expressed concern over the increasing role and influence of the new Calvinism characterized by an aggressive insistence on the doctrines of grace. Well, they believe that that's what the Bible teaches, so it would explain their aggressive insistence. And that would be total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints within the denomination. While there are there are and have been Calvinists in the SBC, uh, the statement points out that the majority of Southern Baptists do not embrace Calvinism, and even the few who do tend to modify its teachings. Okay, anyway, so I thought that was kind of interesting, and um, for an in-depth response to this salvation document, I, again, highly recommend uh, the work of Dr. James White uh, from Alpha and Omega Ministries, on the salvation document he did on uh, the dividing line, which I think is worth a listen to, because he points out that uh, this document 
runs the runs off the rails into you know semi Pelagianism at best. But uh, Albert Muller, who is probably the premier Calvinist within the Southern Baptist Convention, has weighed in on this on his own website, and this is from today. And the headline reads, Southern Baptists and Salvation, It's Time to Talk. Dr. Moeller writes, he says, A recent statement on the doctrine of salvation has received a good bit of attention in recent days. Since it deals with matters of current controversy, it has generated some heat. Our current task as Southern Baptists is to engage in a theological conversation that will transform heat into light. This is the very least we owe each other as brothers and sisters who are committed to the Great Commission, to the Southern Baptist Convention, and to each other. The document, identified as, quote, a statement of the traditional Southern Baptist understanding of God's plan of salvation, was written and released by a group of Southern Baptists who clearly intend to make a theological argument. Their public action and serious intention should be welcomed. We should be glad that Southern Baptists are fully capable of engaging in a theological and biblical discussion over doctrine. Furthermore, we should be thankful that we are discussing God's plan of salvation and the right way of understanding how God saves sinners, what could be more important. First, we should pause to reflect that thanks to the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, we are not debating the inerrancy of the Bible. That matter is settled among us. That's some, and that's a good point. Next, we are privileged to, to be having a debate among those who affirm the total truthfulness and authority of the Bible. Otherwise, we would surely be debating the issues and have consumed the more liberal denominations such as the same-sex marriage, the ordination of practicing homosexuals to the ministry, and feminine God language. That's right. Uh, you know, all of the denomin- all the mainline denominations who have abandoned the inerrancy of Scripture, look where they're at. <laughs> Good point, Dr. Muller. I completely agree. Next, it's no small matter that Southern Baptists are discussing how best to speak of God's salvation, even as we are fully engaged in the task of reaching the nations with the gospel of Christ. I am profoundly thankful that we are not a denomination that is arguing over the Great Commission, embarrassed by missions and evangelism. We can handle this current discussion, and we should actually be grateful for it. Second, all Southern Baptists should affirm that those who drafted, released, and signed their names to this document had every right to do so. Furthermore, they had every right to hold conferences, publish materials, lead institutions, gather together, and advocate for their beliefs and concerns in every appropriate way. We should welcome their serious concern and their willingness to speak openly and convictionally. I thank them for their willingness to put words on paper and then thrust themselves into this kind of conversation. Third, having published their statement, I am certain that the signatories expect a response to it. That response should be careful and measured. It should focus on the substance of the document and not on an attempt to question intentions. I know almost all who have signed this statement. I know their intention is to serve the cause of Christ. I wholeheartedly and emphatically agree with some of the statement's most important declarations, such as when it denies, quote, that salvation is possible outside of a faith response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when it affirms, quote, the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned his church to preach the good news of salvation to all people to the ends of the earth. I rejoice in its statement that the proclamation of the gospel is God's means of bringing any person to salvation. It is certainly correct in denying that any person is regenerated apart from hearing and responding to the gospel. That said, 
I could not sign the document. Indeed, I have very serious reservations and concerns about some of its assertions and denials. I fully understand the intention of the drafters to oppose several Calvinist renderings of doctrine, but some of the language employed in the statement goes far beyond this intention. Some portions of the statement actually go beyond Arminianism and appear to affirm semi-Pelagian understandings of sin, human nature, and human will, understandings that virtually all Southern Baptists have denied. Clearly, some Southern Baptists do not want to identify as either Calvinist, non-Calvinist, or Arminian. That is fine by me. But these theological issues have been debated by evangelicals for centuries now, and those labels stick for a reason. That leads me to make another qualification. I do not believe that those most problematic statements truly reflect the beliefs of many who signed this document. I know many of these men very well, and I know them to be doctrinally careful and theologically discerning. Some of those of these very men have served most boldly in the defense of the faith, and they have taught me much. We should be honored by the privilege of a serious theological conversation with one another, and we will all speak more carefully when we are respectfully questioned by those with whom we disagree. Fourth, the last thing Southern Baptists need now or ever is the development of theological tribalism among us. We must all repent of this sin of building a tribe when we are called to serve the kingdom of Christ. The more Calvinistic Southern Baptists, and here I include myself, are deeply theological and passionately concerned to get the gospel right. The Calvinists I know are transforming their beliefs into an absolute renaissance of missionary commissionings and gospel church planning. At times, however, Calvinists can be tribal and elitist, more concerned with counting points of doctrine and less concerned with pointing us all to the mission of the gospel. Such a tribalism is inconsistent with the very beliefs that we cherish. This goes to show that we too, can be inconsistent in faith and practice. Of such tribalism, we must all repent. We should never apologize for attention to doctrine, especially when those doctrines reach the very heart of the gospel. But tribalism, whether Calvinist or non-Calvinist, is an affront to the gospel by which we have all been saved and the mission of the Great Commission that is entrusted to us. May God save us from dividing into tribes, even as we gladly and eagerly talk with one another about the doctrines we cherish, and especially when we discuss the doctrines on which we may disagree. Fifth, we must recognize and affirm together that we have already stated where Southern Baptists stand on the great doctrines of our faith. The Baptist faith and message is our confession of faith, and it binds us all together on common ground. The BFNM does not state doctrines comprehensively, but it defines our necessary consensus. Every Southern Baptist is free to believe more than the confessions affirm, but nevertheless, the Baptist faith and message includes majestic statements on salvation, the doctrines that we hold in common. The chairman of the committees who proposed the Baptist faith and message in 1925, 63, and 2000 were Southern Baptist statesmen and theologians who reflected and embraced the great doctrinal consensus that has marked Southern Baptists. E.Y. Mullins, Herschel H. Hobbs, and Adrian Rogers were statesmen, and their theological commitments were never tribal. The Baptist faith and message serves Southern Baptists as our confessional means of accountability and unity. Where it speaks, it speaks for us all. 
This means that every single Southern Baptist should be ready to work gladly with every other Southern Baptist who stands within the Baptist faith and message. Both Calvinists and non-Calvinists have a legitimate claim to represent the traditional Southern Baptist understanding. In truth, a look at the Baptist faith and message confirms that the Southern Baptist tradition includes both. There is a lot for us to discuss and plenty of time for that discussion. But that conversation must not be immobilized, must not immobilize us from standing together to reach the nations or to lead us into tribalism. I love and respect the men who signed this new statement. I believe that they love and respect me. We have walked arm in arm for too long to abandon each other now. We need each other, and as some outsiders might say, we deserve each other. The presence of more than one tradition and stream of doctrinal influence has been healthy for Southern Baptists. We have been strengthened by both the Charleston and Sandy Creek traditions representing Southern Baptists who rightly prize their doctrinal understandings but eagerly work together in the gospel service. We should respect the need for churches, institutions, and denominational friends who represent the historic Southern Baptist traditions. We would not be, uh, we would not be who are who we are or who God has called us to be without each other. May God grant us grace to glorify Christ and edify the church as we talk about matters that mean so much to us. Let us be thankful for the conversation to which we are now called and thankful for the brothers and sisters we are privileged to engage in this conversation. And above all, let us have this conversation as we devote ourselves unreservedly to the work of the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention has called us to do. Let us remember this. A lost world is waiting and a rising generation of Southern Baptists is watching. So uh, Albert Muller's response, first response to that uh, document uh, is very statesman-like. And uh, let's just say that he's ready to roll up his sleeves, open up the Bible, and have a real theological discussion. And, you know, as a Lutheran, you know, who I'm on the sidelines watching what's going on. I will be watching with um, with kind of, you know, expectation and hope that that this all works out for the best. Um, I think that there's some important things that need to happen here. Personally, um, I don't think that the folks who put that document together are going to be able to biblically defend their position uh, because it's, like I said, semi-Pelagian at best, and Pelagianism um, is not in agreement with Southern Baptist doctrine. And in fact, well, that's been a heresy, a heresy that the church has identified as heresy for centuries now. And no Southern Baptist or Methodist or Lutheran who holds to Pelagian views regarding the nature of man and and the role of God in conversion, um, well, they they don't have a right to the Christian moniker. They have to be considered heretics. So I'll be curious to see how this all plays out, and we'll keep you posted. But interesting uh, opening gambit by uh, Dr. Muller and inviting them to the theological discussion table, and we will be watching to see what happens. Okay, we are up on our second break, and when we return, we're going to continue with our uh, walk through the Blackaby uh, Experiencing God series as it was taught at Granger Community Church during their midweek in-depth adult Bible study, if you can call it that. 
so you're not going to want to miss that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. 
Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunner's and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunner's, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. And thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Our next installment of the Experiencing God curriculum over at Granger Community Church, but let's cue this up and do it right. Here at Fighting for the Faith, we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon isn't a sermon, it's a midweek in-depth adult Bible study uh, working through Blackaby's Experiencing God workbook. So far, no good. Lots of Bible twisting and missing the point. Apparently God wants to talk to you, but you've got to find out where he is and then join him first, you know. It's not what the Bible teaches. See the previous episodes for more clarification. This is week nine of the series. Um, I think they did 12 weeks of this, so we're nearing the conclusion of our work through on this. So, all right, let's um, kill the music here. Sorry, the music caught my attention. So, so without any further ado, here is uh, week nine of the Experiencing God curriculum at Granger Community Church. Here we go. Hi, everybody. Let's get started on time. I have only two words to start us off with. Holy Moses. <laughs> Let's have some fun. What a week this was. The Bible study was just amazing. Oh, wow. <clears throat> I was thinking about adjusting my life to Jesus. You know, you, you come to know the Lord and... and uh, he shows himself to you. He shows his love to you. And you say to him, I'm in. I'm in. You, you accept the invitation. Then you hit that crisis of belief and you have to adjust yourself. I, uh, this morning, after my first class, I sat down in my office. I closed the door and kind of hid myself for a while. And I spent two hours trying to find a miracle that Jesus worked that was not an adjustment for him. Seriously. Every one of the miracles... What? You had to work... Which of the miracles that Jesus performed that wasn't an adjustment for him? 
what see this is this is an example of like poorly framing a question or you know i mean listen i don't know what he's talking about and there's no indication from any of the biblical authors of the eyewitness the eyewitnesses to the life teaching death and resurrection of jesus christ that says anything that well jesus really had to make some major adjustments in order to pull this miracle off this is at this point we're taking something foreign and outside of the revealed word of god and inserting it into the biblical text this is a form of psychologizing the passages at this point now we're psychologizing jesus i mean what an adjustment it must have been for jesus to you know to rise from the dead i mean he had to actually start breathing again what an adjustment that was was an interruption to what he was doing what he was what he was going to do there he was in uh, in uh, uh, actually uh, in uh, Capernaum he's he's up north he's around the Sea of Galilee area and and immediately uh, there is a, de- a demon possessed man who comes Jesus gets in the boat goes across the Sea of Galilee and it says he gets out of the boat and as soon as he gets out of the boat and only God knows why he was there maybe to take the disciples to a place that wasn't all Jewish. These are 10 Gentile cities. He gets out of the boat, and immediately a man with a demon in him approaches Jesus, and you know what happens after that. And uh, Jesus sends the evil spirits into the pigs and works that miracle. Then then he gets back in the boat, crosses back across the Sea of Galilee. Now, his mother and his brothers and sisters live there. Simon Peter's mother-in-law lives there. So we're not sure why he was there, maybe to visit his home, maybe to visit Peter's, uh, Peter's home. But when he gets out of the boat, again, it says as soon as, he, as soon as he sets foot out of the boat, he's approached by a guy who says, my daughter is dying, would you come to my house and heal my daughter? So he's interrupted again, and he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler's daughter. As he's walking, he's surrounded with a large crowd, and a woman reaches her hand through the legs of the disciples, right? And she what? touches his garment, he had not read Mark chapter 5. He didn't know it was time for another miracle. He gets interrupted three times in that one story and, uh, and, works, and works a miracle three times. So what I did was I got into the Gospel of John and I went through every miracle in the Gospel of John. His first miracle was the wedding party in Cain of Galilee. You know why he went to the wedding? Anybody know why? He was invited. Seriously. <laughs> The Bible says that Jesus and his disciples were invited. You ever get invited to a wedding? Why do you go there? You go there to be with the people. Yeah, just be with your friends. And they run out of wine, and guess what? First miracle, he changes the water into wine. Ever since then, the church has been trying to change that back into water. <laughs> now, that's a good line. I'm going to have to use that one in the future. But First miracle. Then, then in John, I wrote them all down. Everything was an adjustment for him. Don't be surprised that you have to adjust your life. He did it every day, many times a day. Every miracle was an adjustment. Maybe, maybe every adjustment in your life will be a miracle too. What are you talking about? So, yeah, every miracle he performed was an adjustment in his life. And maybe God's going to make cause, you know, if you find what God's doing in the world, you're going to have to make adjustments and then it'll be a miracle in your life too. This isn't biblical teaching. This is this is actually a form of narcissistic eisegesis, reading yourself into the text. You know, at this point, we're, we're, we're not reading the Bible for content. 
We're reading the Bible instead to look at patterns. Oh, see, see, here's the pattern that God used here, here, and here. And so I'm looking for the same patterns in my life because m- the story of my life, well, it's it's base. It would be in the Bible too, except for the Bible's been closed for a long time because you know that's how important I am. And so I'm looking for the patterns in my life so I can see the miracles because my story is is you know how to make sense of my story is to is by looking at the patterns in the Bible and I can say, oh, you know, I'm just like. Jesus. Oh, boy. Uh, Think about it. I know you're familiar with the ways that you have been, but God is calling you further up and further in to do something different, to adjust your life to something different. You don't want to stay. Sometimes the demons are... Yes, God is calling me to adjust my life, but that's not something nebulous. It's actually something very concrete and specific. Sanctification, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is helping you know literally putting to death my sinful flesh and its desires and molding me to be more like Christ and so uh the the specific ways in that looks like has to, you want to look at the 10 commandments the, that's where we go or we look at the imperatives in the epistles in the new testament the, the sanctifying work of the holy spirit is definitely adjusting my life but i can see how he's doing it and he's doing it through the means of his word so when I read in Scripture God's law, his commandments, his imperatives, the things I've been set free in Christ now to do, I, you know, I, I know what that is, but that's not what he's talking about. He's, this is something different than the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through the means of God's word to put to death the works of the flesh and the desires of the flesh and have that new man rise that, that grows have our minds transformed through the renewing knowledge of the Word of God. That's not what he's talking about here. This is some nebulous... You you found where God's working in the world, and you've joined him, and he wants to do a miracle in your life, but you've got to make adjustments because he's revealed to you what he wants to do apart from his Word, and now you've got to make adjustments to join him in that work. Familiar, we get used to him, right? Whatever the addiction is, whatever the problem is, it'd be easier for us to keep the problem than to face the problem. In John chapter 5, he's by the pool of Bethesda, and he's there for a feast, the Bible says. But he sees this guy who is, uh, who is whining and moaning, for 28 years I've had the same problem. For 28 years I've tried to get into the waters when the angel stirs the waters. And every time I try to get in, somebody beats me to it. So what? For 28 years he didn't adjust his life. For 28 years it was a, it was a shabby pity party and no power in, in his life. So Jesus walks up to him and says what I believe God says to us. Jesus says, it's the only person in the Gospels Jesus ever asked this question of. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to hold on to the problem? Hmm? Or do you want to adjust? Do you want to be healed? So I believe that's God's question to us tonight, beloved. Uh, Do you want to be healed? In John chapter 9, he goes into the temple to worship. The blind man's there. Jesus adjusts his schedule. He adjusts his heart and meets the need of the person. And John, uh, one of my students said to me today when I told him what I was doing, he said, oh, I can, give you, I can give you one where Jesus planned on working a miracle. It was in his schedule. He planned it. He knew he was going to do it. I said, really? I said, because I, I can't find anything. He said, no. He said, John 11. He planned on, he, he made sure he stayed an extra two days for Lazarus to be stone cold dead. And he went to, went to Bethany to heal Lazarus after he knew he was dying. I said, sorry, man, sorry. He was way up in Galilee with the disciples, and word came to him that Lazarus was dying. 
and he had to leave what he was doing up there in Galilee. He just left a little later, that's all. It says two days later. Two days after he heard that he's dying. He waited. That's what the text says. Well, it doesn't fit. See, here's the deal. He's approaching Scripture with his own ideas. Every, Every miracle, Jesus had to make an adjustment because you've got to make an adjustment. And so when there's the biblical text that contradicts you, what do you do? You deny that's what the text says. Oh, boy. Uh, Every every one of the miracles is an adjustment. Every miracle that God wants to do in your life will be an adjustment. And some of them may seem too big that they could never happen in your life. And some of them may seem so small you don't even want to bother him with it. There's nothing too big for him. There's nothing too small for him. Come on, he's God. Would it it be harder for him to part the Red Sea or to part your hair? (laughs) He's God. Either one is easy for him. Um. So, so I started thinking when, when it hit me that Jesus' journey, his whole journey, he didn't know what was going to happen. He just was ready to adjust. He already faced his crisis of belief, and he said, Abba, whatever you do, that's where I want to be. You're working. You're always working. Jesus already faced his crisis of belief. Where does the Bible say that? Answer, it doesn't. This is eisegesis based upon a theology built on texts that are ripped out of context. I want to find out where you're working, and I will join you there. If God's doing something at GCC and, uh, and I can help meet a need, that's where I want to be, God. I want to be wherever you are working. And so it, it hit me again. And how many times has God brought this to me? Would you write this in your notes somewhere? Beloved, Catherine of Siena was right when she said, all the way to heaven, What? Say it. All the way to heaven is what? Heaven. All the way to heaven is heaven. God's goal for your life is the process. Greyhound Bus used to say it this way. Half the fun is getting there. Right? The, God's goal for your life is the process. It's, it's your journey with him. It's as you're walking through your daily walk. That- Before this gets too far down the it, does anyone else find it weird that he's quoting Catherine of Siena? Uh, I mean, Catherine of Siena um, was a tertiary of the Dominican order. She is a Roman Catholic nun. Um, why is he quoting a Roman Catholic nun? Favorably. He will bring a need to you. He'll show you a need, and his spirit will be strong in you to adjust your schedule to meet that need. How would you, all the way to heaven is heaven. God's goal for you is the process. His goal for you is not to get your master's degree, to finish your PhD. As soon as I get married, then I'm going to really start living for God. As soon as I, uh, or we raise our children, we'll have time to serve in the church. We always set these goals out there that shouldn't even be goals. Uh, can I point something out, like really obvious? There's biblical passages that tell us to be good fathers, good husbands, good mothers, good sons, good daughters, good parents. Um... So I know those are good works because God's word tells me that. I don't have to serve in church to do a good work, even though I do. But I see, I, I'm i a teacher, so, but uh, th- that's beside the point. You don't have to serve God by doing something in church. You're already, the way you love your neighbor is in vocation. It's in the, it's in the vocation that God has put you in as father, mother, 
son, daughter, student, employee, whatever, that you're already doing good works because that's what God has told you to do. I don't even have to guess. I mean, it's just so clear right there in Scripture. Notice the dichotomy here in the way he's saying, you know, I'm going to really start living for God once I get married. But the reality is he should be telling people, listen, when you get married, when you are being faithful to your wife and loving and serving her and caring for her and providing for her, that's a good work in God's eyes. Because that's what the Bible says. But he's not doing that. My goal is right now, today, to see what he wants to do in my life today. And I will adjust whatever I have to do. When he shows me what he's up to and invites me to join him, I'm going to adjust my life in such a way that I I will do that. And often that's an emotional adjustment. Uh, For me, I told you last week, for me, uh, the biggest adjustment in my life was to lose the fear that if people got to know me, they wouldn't love me. Uh, To be afraid of ever having a true friend who would, uh, a friend I could confess my faults to, a friend that would love me in spite of my sin. That was the hardest thing for me to do. It took me years of our marriage until God finally broke me of that. It got me into some real friendships. What will your adjustments look like, beloved? I guess the the most important thing you can do as as we start to go into our table conversation is, uh, did you hear Rob this weekend? Rob said, God wants to keep me malleable, M-A-L-L-E-A-B-L-E, malleable. It's a good word. It, It comes from the story of Jeremiah going down to the potter's house, and Jeremiah watches the potter throwing a pot, and he's sitting at the wheel, and he's pumping, he's pumping that wheel so that the pot spins, and he puts his thumbs on the pot, and he starts forming a pot. And and Jeremiah says, as I watch the potter throw a pot, I see him reach a point where where the pot is not what he wants it to be, and it's too dry for him to fix it. So he takes that pot, and he throws it against the wall and smashes it. He says, but if the pot is wet enough to be reshaped, that's exactly what what, uh, Rob was talking about. Would you write this in your notes? Stay wet. Stay wet. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that the job of the potter to keep the clay wet? Since when did clay start wetting itself? (laughs) Sorry, that didn't sound right. But yeah, we got a problem here. You don't want to have your life thrown against the wall. Stay malleable, shapeable, that God can still use you. If, if you keep saying no to him when his spirit tells you to adjust, to adjust and then to obey. If you keep saying... Not obey what's written in the word. It's obey this, this external thing, this prompting that he's talking about here. I got to keep emphasizing that. You got to find what God's doing and join him, you know, and then obey him and adjust and to his spirit. The day will come when he won't bother you anymore. He'll just leave you alone. How does God punish? Not like your parents punished. Not like your father spanked you. God spanks in a far different way. He turns you over to yourself. It's terrifying, but that's God's number one way of punishing. When the disciples were going through the the cities, they came to a city that wouldn't let Jesus come in. And they ran back to Jesus and said, they won't let you preach in there. Call hellfire down on them and burn them up. Why did James and John say that? Because their dad was this this uh, fisherman named Zebedee, who was always uh, a loud man, and he probably spanked them all the time. Where does it say in the text that Zebedee was a fisherman and a loud man who spanked his sons all the time? I don't recall that passage of Scripture. And so they said, hey, Jesus, burn them up. And Jesus said, no, boys, no, boys, shake the dust off your feet. We're moving on. My punishment for that city is what? I won't bother them. I won't go in. They, never, they will never have to adjust their lives to my spirit. It's terrifying. You don't want that kind of silence from God in your life. 
What Bible is he reading? Luke chapter 9 is where this is found, by the way. Chapter 9, I'll start at verse 51. Here's what it says. When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. That's it. I mean, that's all that happened. There's nothing else in there about this incident. I mean, we're hearing some weird stuff here at Granger Community Church. Apparently, they've got extra-biblical revelation well, maybe they experienced God. That's how they got all the stuff that isn't even in the Bible. So be the kind of person who can adjust by hearing the click, the click of the alarm before the ring goes off. <laughs> okay. I should have said that with Moses' voice, but uh, maybe it would have had more impact. Yeah, Moses never said any of those things. All right, gang. Here we go. You're going to have four minutes to do the first thing, and we've got it up here on the board, up on the screen. So, so if you are the kind of person who wants to hear God's voice and you will adjust, how much easier or harder would, it, would obedience be if it didn't require you to make that adjustment? How much easier or, or harder would obedience You know, my obedience, I mean, serious or lack thereof so so often, um, it's never easy um, because I still have my sinful flesh to deal with. It has nothing to do with whether or not I need to make an adjustment. It's that I have a sinful flesh that's wars. I've, I've got to do good works via the means of my sinful flesh. Not an easy proposition because my sinful carcass is is fighting me the whole time, it seems like. Yeah, adjustments, that's kind of like like such a s- small reason. I don't even... It's be, if it- By the way, this is obedience not to the written word of God, but obedience to the inner prompting, the thing that God is calling you to do in the world, to join him with. Didn't require you to make personal adjustments. That's what you're supposed to talk about for four minutes. I'll give you four starting right now. All right, we'll fast forward through the four minutes and just pick them up on the other end of that table discussion. Here we go that part up. I see a lot of trick-or-treaters back this week. Welcome back to you. We missed you. Uh, Did you all notice that it was very different driving to uh, Bible study tonight in the pitch dark? I know you're not ready for winter. Isn't it good to have friends at a table that uh, anticipate you coming? Some of you... This was the week after Halloween, so you know, so it's November now when this was recorded. Because you know that the people there uh, love you and you're accountable to show up because of that. That's so important. By now, this is our ninth week. Think, think of the relationships that we are making with each other that just might last for, forever, will last forever because of Christ. Uh, at, at your table, we're going to move in. When I was reading my, my Bible study uh, unit this week, the eighth unit... Each day I would read, I would think to myself, wow, this could be an amazing Monday night. If each person at each table is as open and self-disclosing as you possibly can be with these at least nine-week-old friends, you could do, you could do so much work uh, spiritually uh, 
So much can get done for the kingdom. Uh, this weekend, Rob said, kingdom come thinking. King, kingdom come thinking instead of contract negotiation. That God, that God can do something with my life if I just realize that uh, it's his kingdom being built in me. Here's what we're going to do for eight minutes now. Consider Rob's prayer on the weekend and our prayer focus for the week. Your kingdom become, your will be done in my life right now in, in Michiana as it is in, in your heaven. How does praying this specific part of the Lord's prayer affect two things? Spend about four minutes on each. Your awareness of the adjustments you need to make to align yourself to God's will and purpose for your life. And your willingness to make that adjustment that aligns your life. Your awareness that you got something that needs to change. And your willingness to go. Based upon personal revelation, not what's in the word. To go the distance and make that change. Go ahead. Who's brave enough to start it off? All right. So they're going to discuss that for eight minutes. I'm going to fast forward and pick it up on the other side. Here we go. Okay, gang. Notice this is supposed to be in-depth Bible study, but the discussion isn't about what's revealed in God's Word. Nor has there been sound exegesis here. It's so good to see you talking to each other and, and feeling comfortable with each other. Uh, are, are any of you at a table, an entire family? Anybody, an entire family of people? I thought there were several, several tables like that. And the rest of you are also just uh, different moms and dads, right? Uh, this next section, if you spent the whole time, can we see it on the screen? If you spent the whole time doing the last thing, it would be worthwhile. You're going to have 10 minutes uh, to do this, uh, but you can't spend the, all 10 minutes doing the, the last thing. Describe one adjustment you've made in the past two months as you've worked through. I, I would love to, that everyone would have time to do that. Uh, and that would take 10 minutes probably for everybody to do it. Uh, but I, w- I want you to get there. But, but, but before you do that, <clears throat> let's, let's be obedient to the Spirit, bringing us through. Be obedient to the Spirit. N- notice it's not be obedient to what God has revealed in his word. Apparently it's be obedient to whatever the Spirit is speaking to you directly into your heart. The Bible doesn't teach this. Specific areas of our life where we may need to make adjustments. And again, self-disclosure would be wonderful. Why, why, you can't lie to your workbook, why lie to each other, right? So you might as well just come out and, and talk about the area. I know what mine are. A month ago, God convicted me to make an adjustment, and for a month it has driven me crazy trying to do it. And I'm just starting now to see some of the rewards. Uh, if he asked you to make the adjustment, you'd be a wise person to follow his spirit. Uh, go ahead now and uh, spend some time uh, helping bring... Up there, down here, in these six areas, the circumstances that you find yourself in. Do you think those are coincidental? I doubt it. The relationships you have with people right now, the people who are in your world. The thinking that you have had possibly for years, and God is trying to change that thinking. Maybe it's the thinking you have about yourself and who you think you are and what you can, what you cannot do. The commitments that you've made in your life but possibly haven't, haven't kept or commitments you need to make. The actions and beliefs. Okay, take off, gang. Solid 10 minutes here.
Okay, while they're discussing that, I'm going to read part uh, part of the the uh, workbook for the week that that basically is forming the basis of these discussion questions. From Blackaby's Experiencing God uh, Revised and Expanded Workbook, made available by Lifeway. Um, <clears throat> day one, adjustments are necessary, okay? Uh, in the margin, it says, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. So you got to go find where God's working in the world and join him. So you can't go with God. You can't stay where you are and go with him. So many of us want God to speak to us and to give us an assignment. However, we are not interested in making major adjustments in our lives. Biblically, that position is impossible. Every time God spoke to people in the scripture about something he wanted to do through them, made uh, to what he wanted to do through them, major adjustments were required. They had to adjust their lives to God. Once the adjustments were made, God accomplished his purposes through those he called. Adjusting your life to God is the second critical uh, turning point in your knowing and doing the will of God. The first turning point was the crisis of belief. You must believe God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. Without faith in God, you will make wrong uh, wrong a wrong decision at this first turning point. Adjusting your life to God is another turning point. If you choose to make the adjustment, you can move on to obedience. Oh, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? If you refuse to make the adjustment, you will miss what God has in store for your life. So you, God has the stuff in store for you, but you've got to make these adjustments, so otherwise you'll miss it. So one, if you have faith at the crisis of belief, what else is required as a demonstration of that faith? Fill in the blank below. Reality five, God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and, well, adjustment. Once you have come to believe God, you demonstrate your faith by what you do, your actions. Some response is required. This action is one of the major adjustments we will focus on in this unit. Your obedience will also be part of that action required. Your adjustments and obedience will be costly to you and those around you. So faith leads to actions, and action equals adjustments plus obedience. So when God speaks to you to reveal what he, what he, what he is about to do, that revelation is your invitation to adjust your life to him. Let me read that again. When God speaks to you, to reveal what he is about to do. This is outside of his word. God speaking directly to you. That revelation is your invitation to adjust your life to him. Your faith will be most clearly demonstrated by your actions. Actions uh, you will take include the adjustments you must make to be in a position, therefore, to obey the Lord. Once you've adjusted your life to the Lord, you act in obedience, and then God accomplishes through you what he has purposed to do. Adjustments prepare you for obedience. You cannot continue life as usual or stay where you are and go with God at the same time. This truth is demonstrated throughout Scripture. For instance, Noah could not continue life as usual and build an ark. Abram could not stay in Ur or Haran, the father and father a nation in Canaan. Moses could not stay on the backside of the desert herding sheep and stand before Pharaoh. 
David had to leave his sheep to become king. Amos had to leave the sycamore trees to preach in Israel. Jonah had to leave his home and overcome major prejudice in order to preach in Nineveh. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had to leave their fishing business to follow Jesus. Matthew had to leave his tax collector's booth to follow Jesus. Saul, later Paul, had to completely change directions in his life to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. These men had to make enormous adjustments. Some had to leave family and country. Others had to renounce prejudices and change their values. Others had to leave behind life goals, ideals, and desires. They had to yield everything to God and align their entire lives to him. The moment they made the necessary changes, God began to accomplish his purposes through them. Each one, however, learned that adjusting one's life to God is well worth the cost. So your scripture memory verse for this unit speaks of major adjustments that must be made in order to be a disciple. Write down Luke chapter 14, verse 33. Now let me read this to you, noting that it's out of context. I'm going to read it from the NIV translation. It reads, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. No context. Just, you've got to give up. So these adjustments, I mean, so here's the deal. I mean... There you are. God wants to do something through you. He's got some big plan, purpose for your life. He's, but you've got to be willing to make adjustments. Are you an accountant? Well, you're gonna to have to. Be, you're gonna to have to stop being an accountant. Uh, probably. You're gonna to have to probably uh, do something completely different. Are you? Are you a homemaker? Well, you. You got to do something different. Are you? Uh, you know. Are you an employee working in the cubicle maze of a major corporation? Well, you got to be willing to make adjustments. For those of you working in cubicle mazes probably wouldn't complain about that, though. But <laughs> see, here's the problem. This isn't based upon content reading of the Old Testament. It's by looking at patterns and somehow saying that those are normative. But Scripture doesn't say that the pattern that Moses went through or the pattern that so-and-so went through in the Old Testament is a normative pattern. And if you want to join God, you've got to be willing to make the adjustments that Noah made, that Moses made, and all that kind of stuff. Because what's written in Scripture is salvation history. It isn't your history. And we are called to work quietly with our hands, make money for ourselves, a little extra to pay, you know, to meet the needs of others to love God and you know to love God and serve neighbor in our vocations nowhere in the new testament is this taught nowhere did the apostles say listen in order for you to join God in what he's doing you got to be willing to make major adjustments it doesn't say that it doesn't say it so what they're doing is they're taking a pattern from the people of, of the Bible and saying that this is normative. Not only is it normative, it's law. If you're not willing to adjust the way they did, you're going to miss what God has in store for your life. But the Bible doesn't say this. This is not gospel, and this is not Christian sanctification. This is not what the scriptures say for us to do as Christians when it comes to sanctification. I would simply point to, you know, the tail end of like, you know, Ephesians, uh, of the book of Ephesians. After Paul clearly preaches the gospel to the churches, uh, to the churches in Ephesus, he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Notice that there's adjustments, but it's putting away of sin and being conformed to the image of God. So um, for you, uh, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous or is idolater has no inheritance. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of de- disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. Uh, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. It's shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. So look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husband, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might uh, sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Um, You you get what's going on here, right? Children, obey your parents, chapter 6, verse 1. And the Lord, for this is right, honor your father and mother. When you want to know what Christian sanctification looks like, it's actually spelled out clearly. And when you look at Christian sanctification, it doesn't say, okay, listen, you got to go find what God's doing in the world and join him. And you need to be willing to make adjustments so that you can be like Daniel or Moses or whatever. It says, serve your neighbor in your vocation. Sounds kind of common, rather ordinary, and it is. So what they're describing here in this experiencing God curriculum, these adjustments are never told to us that we need to be able to make adjustments. This is a new teaching based upon a false reading of these words, turning these patterns that that occurred in salvation history into a law that you must obey because apparently God wants to use you the same way he used, used Moses, and you need to be willing to make the same kind of adjustments that Moses made in order to be used by God for that. But it says in Scripture that God wants you to love and serve your wife or your husband or your employee or your neighbor through your work. You get what I'm saying? This is a different uh, – this is not biblical sanctification. This is a competing foreign false schema of Christian sanctification that has you chasing the wind, literally the wind, and obeying voices in your head rather than obeying the clear written word of God. This is not biblical sanctification. But we fast forward now to the next segment. We continue. Okay. Come back to me. You're doing great. We're, uh, we're more than halfway done tonight. I'm teaching, I'm teaching spiritual warfare in one of my classes at Bethel, and it's a really difficult thing for some students to realize for the first time in their lives that they live a life opposed, to think of evil as a person, 
that there really is a Satan and there are demons. I told them that if they don't believe that Satan was always on the mind of Jesus, they will never understand Jesus. Uh, one of my students said, yeah, but DB, is, is Satan omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent like God is? Uh, she said, is Satan the opposite of God? And I said, no, no, dear student, there is no opposite of God. There is God. He has no opposite. If anything, Satan is an opposite of maybe a, a, an archangel like Michael or Gabriel. Uh, you've heard me say before at this church, Satan isn't omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful, and he certainly isn't omnipresent. He's got plenty of demons to send on their errands, but uh, if anything, I said, he's omni-loser. And, and this girl, my students laughed, except this girl. And she, she said, yeah, but he's a sore loser. She said, he's a really bad loser, TB. I said, yeah, he is. He doesn't want to lose you. And when students start pulling away from him and adjusting to agape love and realizing that there's hope for them and they can, they can take their lives away from the kingdom of darkness and put it under the dominion of, the, of a king of light, uh, Satan, Satan will continue to bother you. You will have opposition in your life, and that's what this section's about. It's an important 10 minutes. What opposition have you faced in the past when you've set out to obey God in a particular area of your life? There are four questions here to deal with. Here they are. That first one, then the second. What helped you to persevere? How did you make it? What opposition are you facing? So apparently, uh, confirmation that you're hearing from God is that you're going to experience opposition. It just might be that the opposition that you think is opposition is just somebody, the voice of sanity saying, what are you doing? This is crazy. God's word doesn't say this. Why do you think that you have to obey God by doing X, Y, or Z? Now, not just from Satan, but from people too. There will always be people, relatives sometimes, friends sometimes, who will try to oppose your adjustment. They'll like you. They'll be more comfortable with the old you. They liked it when they can count on, on you being sometimes as miserable as they were. And, uh, and now you're wanting to uh, walk to a different drumbeat and follow a different Lord. Uh, what, how will you endure, even thrive as you obey him? How can the friends or family with you help you? These are an amazing 10 minutes ahead of you. Dive in, gang. All right. Like I said, we're going to fast forward again. I just want you to hear what it is that the folks there are discussing. You're going to notice what's missing. An open Bible and biblical text being exegeted in context. Now, this the reason why I'm making that point is because in the purpose-driven slash seeker-driven model for doing church, um, Sunday morning isn't for Christians. It's for the so-called religious seeker. So th that, I mean, there's a reason why they don't do in-depth Bible study on Sunday mornings. It's to... Make it so that you know that we we can we can show that we love our neighbors by telling them something relevant to their lives, so they'll come and um, and join the church, and then we'll teach them uh, during the small group studies and other things, other times when the church meets. That's when they'll get the real solid teaching. But that it's not going to happen on Sunday. It's going to happen, you know, on you know during the week here. But you'll notice what's missing here. Any solid, in-context, biblical teaching, teaching sound doctrine and the basics of the Christian faith. This is a competing foreign, false sanctification that they're teaching here. 
and it's based on kind of a group therapy model, not sound biblical exegesis. But we continue. Okay. I love, uh, I love to watch you guys. I like, I like to pray for you while you're talking. But I also love just to watch you. About every other one of you speaks with your hands. And, the, and, you're, and you're get, you get so animated in the little moves that you make there. I think this last section will animate you. Uh, who, who at your table has the courage and would be willing to uh, describe an experience you've had with God since we, we started the weekend series, How to Pray? Uh, my wife and I have a friend coming into our home just about every other day working on a project for our children. And uh, today she came with tears and um, just saying uh, she's facing a difficult time. Everybody does. We all go, through, all go through crises. God, make me a crisis person to face it, not to run from it. And she's got friends, us and many others included, who will help her. And she said that Sunday when she heard Rob give his sermon. She said it was just like God preparing her for today's crisis. She said, I knew exactly what I needed to do. And lo and behold, I get up on Monday morning and I find out something that I would have caved in and gone into a fetal position if I hadn't had God preparing me for it on Sunday. And I hadn't had God helping me. What about you? What has God done in your life? Can you describe an experience where God has come to you and helped you in the past couple of weeks through the weekend experience on, on how to pray. Go ahead. you got just a few minutes on this. Are you willing to describe an experience you had with God since we've begun our weekend series, How to Pray? So now we're, now we're just talking about our experiences. We don't have an open Bible. We're just group discussion of our experiences. All right. Fast forwarding once again to the tail end of this discussion time. Here we go again. In my, uh, ten, in my 10 plus years of loving this church and coming to this church, I think that this Bible study has been one of the greatest things that I've been uh, able to participate in. And I wish there was a way. This is our ninth week. We just have four more the way I counted. Next week is unit nine on obedience. And then we just have 10, 11, and 12, as far as I can tell. So we really are in home stretch. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you made it through the whole thing and we were able to give you like a bachelor's degree somehow without you having... But I'm not sure you want a bachelor's degree in experiencing God. I don't know if you want that behind your name. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, wouldn't be a bad idea, though, to have Beg behind your name because uh, that's who we are, isn't it? We're one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. His name is Jesus. Um, I told you about a friend of mine last uh, week who told me that he would never come to Granger Community Church because that's that church that uh, focuses too much on people who aren't Christians. And you remember I, you remember I said to him, and the problem, <laughs> what is the problem there? Uh, interestingly, uh, interestingly enough, he has come to know a member of, uh, on the staff here at GCC and grown to love this guy so much that he now, that student now comes to this church because uh, he got, he just got, he got his life destroyed by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and now he's here with us a lot 
And he wants to be a part of that reaching out to other people. He thought for a while that a church was supposed to be for people who, uh, who were Christians and they needed to grow and they needed to be discipled. Absolutely. And we're all about that too. But not so that you can get your problems fixed, so that you can be equipped to reach a lost and dying world, dying in the shadows of the steeples of our churches. Christianity has never been about us. It's always been about the lost sheep. It's never about the 99 who are in the fold. It's always about the one who is lost. And these are the treasures of God, as Tim Stevens reminded me many years ago. These are not non-Christians. These are not pagans and heathen. These are the treasures of God himself. And how will they hear unless someone is sent? It's our goal at GCC that every member of our church is a, is a reproducing Christian, uh, that we're reaching out to others. You want, you want to see something wonderful? Whenever you find a formula in the Bible, you have found something unique because there aren't many of them. God's not much into formulas. He's not really formulaic. He is left-brained, but I believe that he is more right-brained. And there is a, an empathy in him that is as wide as his heart. And he has a way sometimes of calling things that are not as if they are. And when Jesus is about to be crucified, he's going from trial, kangaroo court trial, to, to a travesty court trial, from Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate. And each time he says to them, when they say, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, it is as you have said. They weren't saying he's the Christ, but Jesus almost tries to turn their words so that they're saying it. And like, hey, Father, he almost said it. There is such a wideness in his mercy. He is trying to bring people in and include people and get people to life. Uh, So when you see a formula in the Bible, you better pay attention. There aren't many of them. In John chapter 15, and I'm going to ask you to put this in your notebook on page, as we move into chapter 9. On page 179, in the blank spot there at the bottom, under experiencing God through obedience, if you'll just jot down this little formula that you'll see in John 15, where Jesus says, "Ah, really, how can you tell the Christians from the people who are not yet followers of Christ? How can you tell? Because Jesus said, my prayer for you is that you bear much fruit. The people who are bearing fruit for God, fruit-bearing people. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, and here is how God shows his love, uh, through peace and patience and kindness and goodness. How can you tell the Christians uh, from the rest of the world that is always uh, saying, mine, mine, me, me, uh, the Christians are, have agape love, turning them inside out. Uh, they bear fruit. How do you bear fruit? Then the Bible tells you, Jesus says, you bear fruit by abiding in me. You bear fruit by remaining in me. Uh, the vine, uh, the branch cannot bear fruit, lopped off, cut off from the from the vine. Okay, I would point people to the sermon I played recently, the two sermons I played by Pastor Rody and Pastor Hodel, regarding this passage from the Gospel of John, uh, regarding bearing fruit and abiding in Christ. You need to hear the stark difference between what he's teaching here and what Pastor Rody and Hodel pointed out exegetically from this passage it's the the emphasis is on the wrong syllable here you bear fruit by abiding not by visiting me i did that for years i thought that you just visited god on sundays and you heard a sermon and you read your bible and then you tried your best to be a christian you don't bear fruit by by visiting god you bear fruit by abiding by letting your roots go down into him by notice the slap against going to church to hear god's word that's the slap 
you don't go to church and and visit God. So apparently, yeah. So that's the that's the slap against the way the church has always done things on Sunday, to teach the word, to preach the word. Now all of a sudden, that's the enemy of, of fruit bearing, rather than the means by which people bear fruit. Buying in uh, to to his kingdom principles, you bear fruit by abiding. And then the next thing he says in John 15 is, uh, is, here is how you abide in my love, that you obey my commandments. And so that's the chapter we move into. And now the rubber hits the road. And now you get the test. You will be tested on this every day of your life. You bear fruit by abiding. You abide by obeying. But how do you obey? The one, obey, the one who, this is how Jesus said it. Greater love has no man than this, that he would what? Lay his life down for a friend. This is how you obey me, that you love one another with agape love, with love that forgives, with love that restores, with love that makes all things new. Not all new things. You don't move on to another marriage and on to another family and on to another set of problems. You make all, through Christ, you make all things new. My obedience is supposed to make all things new. Well, Revelation 21.5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's Jesus talking. He is the one who's making all things new. Not me and not my obedience, but God himself. Ay, ay, ay. You forgive and reconcile with your neighbor. For you bear fruit by abiding, you abide by obeying, you obey by loving. And as we move into obe- obedience, as you tonight, probably many of you will do what I'm doing, and you, you'll read your first night Bible study on Monday night. So you can kind of have the weekend to do other things and think about it. And so if you move into it tonight, I want you to think about where love will take you when it comes to obedience. And when God asks you to obey, th- think about the Ten Commandments. When the Lord spoke the Ten Commandments and he gave them to Moses... And we took, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and we made our list of rules out of them. And they're little, they're little, uh, they're like mirrors for us to look into to see how we're doing. God never meant for the Ten Commandments to be a checklist for your performance evaluation. The Ten Commandments are the, are the overflow of His, His love for you, your love for Him. He said, O Israel, I have, I have, I have redeemed you from Egypt. I have saved your lives from the Pharaoh and his chariots. Because I have loved you, keep my commands. It's always been a love relationship. The context of obedience has been and always will be agape love. I want you to think about that as you move through the obedience chapter. Now, this is an utter confusion of law and gospel. Utter confusion of law and gospel. And I would strongly recommend getting a book uh, called The Proper Distinction of Long Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. This is utter confusion of long gospel. This is all law and not gospel. Do you, have, uh, do you have something for me up on the screen? I don't do this very often, and I probably won't. But uh, this is the most difficult, probably the most difficult piece of, of Scripture in the New Testament. And so people stay away from this by... Christians by the millions stay away from this passage because it's very confusing to most people. Matthew chapter 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a woman who was not a Jew came up to him and cried out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter's demon-possessed and suffering terribly. 
You know Jesus, don't you? You've read the New Testament. You know that he heals all their sicknesses, heals all their diseases, stays till the last, last light is out. He never says no to anyone, right? He says yes to everyone. How come Luke personally pulls out in, in this verse, you see after she cries out for help and it says, Jesus did not answer a word to her. There's nothing like that in all of the Bible. That's the only place where you will ever see Jesus seemingly paying no attention to a person who needs help. It must be something else going on. Luke knew his heart. Luke knew, come on, the Pharisees knew that Jesus was so, that loved people so much that they figured out a way to get him to break a law. They waited for him to walk into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they made sure that a a lame man, a disabled man was there, and they knew that as soon as Jesus saw the disabled man, he'd heal him. And by healing him, he'd break the law, and they'd be able to arrest him. They knew Jesus was all about love. So did Luke. So do you. So should the disciples have known. So how come that's up there? Why? Is this a test of the woman? No, no. She cried out for help for her family. She already passed the test. She loves her daughter enough to bring her daughter's case to Jesus. That's all he needs to see from her. He's going to heal this girl. It's not her test. Whose test is this? Your test. My test. The disciples' test. And I think this makes this one of the most remarkable pericopes, sections of New Testament scripture that there is. In the the whole Bible, this is the extraordinary one, because this is your test. Do you all remember when the, uh, when many of you were children, when when flight, United Airlines flight crashed into the icy January Potomac River, and we're watching on television back when there were only three channels, we're watching people drown, live, we're watching people drown, we're sitting in our living rooms, weeping because people are drowning. There was a guy named Lenny Skutnik, who was dressed in his maintenance uniform with a heavy winter coat on, who saw that. I showed that at church one weekend. Years ago, Lenny Scottnick ripped off his shirt, dove into the waters, and as I'm watching it, I say to my wife, baby, he's going to die. This guy's going to die along with that flight attendant. And, and she's going under for like the third time. He, he dives in, he saves her life, he brings her heroically back, back, and then the reporters converge on him, and they say to him, Mr. Scottnick, you're a hero. And he goes, I'm not a hero. It was an instinct. I heard a woman say, please help me. Watch, watch this again. I heard a woman say, please help me. Uh, let's go to the next, uh, the next slide. The woman came and knelt before him and cried, Lord, help me. If Lenny Skutnik ripped off his jacket, what do you think Jesus is going to do with this woman? Lenny Skutnik said, I'm not a hero. I just heard a woman say, please help me. And then he, wrote, and then he said to the commentator, and I wrote it down for life. He said, when she said, please help me, he said, I knew this is my test. You hear me? You will get tested on this every day, every day of your life. Are you or are you not a person who can adjust your schedule to the needs of other people? Are you or are you not? This is what God will test you. He tested the disciples, didn't he? How'd they do? Huge, a huge F that day. They flunked that test, abjectly flunked that test. How are you and I doing? As you move into chapter 9, I want you to think about obedience costing you something and that would be that would be a love crisis in your life let's bow and pray father take us from here wow no cross at all just patterns of obedience this is a form of legalistic self-righteousness and it misses the whole point of christian christian sanctification the whole point 
This is just stark, raw, naked obedience. Hmm. Wow. And what's missing? Well, clear passages in context and the gospel. Two big things, but, you know, they're both missing there. Sad, absolutely sad. So what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback on what you heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to send me your feedback, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.